Welcome to Amicus, Slate's new legal podcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent. In 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a case called Panetti versus Quarterman. It raised a lot of questions about whether a man who was convicted of a murder in Texas, a man by the name of Scott Panetti, was just too mentally ill to be put to death. So here's a back and forth from that oral argument between Panetti's lawyer, Greg Weirchuk, and Chief Justice John Roberts. Could you maybe elaborate on that? I mean, if you have someone who is competent at the time they're convicted, competent at the time they're sentenced, and I mean, you say they're, they're, they're walking to the gurney to be executed, you know, they fall and they hit their head and then they don't understand it. It's somehow very cruel to go forward with the execution at that point while it wouldn't have been before? I, I, it seems to me, I mean, obviously the competence at the trial and sentencing is important. I just don't understand the concept that uh, it has to continue to the point of execution. I think that's the very nature of the Ford uh, right, that it is something that intervenes. We're, we're, not, we're not saying that Scott Panetti was not fully culpable, found guilty, sentenced to death. We're not attacking that at all. Something happened. And what happened is he did lose the ability to understand rationally the connection between his crimes. Does, does he understand why he's being imprisoned? I mean, I, does this, the, the Ford right extend to uh, prison? Is it cruel to keep someone locked up for life when they don't understand why they're being locked up for life? In the end, the Supreme Court sent this case back to the Texas courts with instructions to look much more carefully into the question of whether Panetti's schizophrenia and delusions simply made him ineligible for the death penalty. But the lower courts, after doing so, determined he was still fit for execution. The execution of Scott Panetti is set for December 3rd, less than two weeks from now. And later on in today's podcast, we'll talk about the larger issue of how the death penalty is applied to the mentally ill. But first, we're going to speak to one of Scott Panetti's lawyers. Catherine Case is with the Texas Defender Service, and she has been involved in Scott Panetti's case since 2007. She's on the line with us right now from a Burger King parking lot in Texas to tell us a little bit more about her client, where he's been, where this case is going, what her life has been like in the last few weeks of this case. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on Amicus. You're welcome. Why don't we start with Scott Panetti? Because uh, an awful lot of people have not heard about this story and how we got to a situation where Texas is really about to execute somebody who has had a 30-year history of mental illness. Can you tell us about Scott Panetti, your client, uh, what the story is, what the backstory is? Scott Panetti is a seriously mentally ill man who, in 1978, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And his schizophrenia was so chronic and severe that federal government declared him to be disabled and gave Social Security benefits to him in the mid-1980s. Notwithstanding this long history of paranoid schizophrenia, Somehow, he was allowed to represent himself at his own death penalty trial. And the result of that was not only that he was sentenced to death, but that the state of Texas has been trying to explain for more than 20 years how they let a crazy man represent himself while wearing a cowboy outfit at a death penalty trial. 
Now, back up for one minute, because we haven't talked about uh, the crime itself. And uh, Scott Panetti is, uh, and there's no question that he did, uh, in September 1992, shoot at point-blank range his estranged wife's parents. He then uh, took his estranged wife and his child and held them for some period of time and then released them unharmed. But that's the crime that we're talking about. Immediately upon doing all that, he said that Sarge, who was this delusion that he had had for some time, had controlled him at the time of the crime. So he turned himself in, uh, shaved his head and said, you know, the victims never suffered. Demons had been laughing at him. This was the state that the police arrested him in 1992, correct? That's right. And when the police arrested him, they were aware that he'd had this long history of mental illness because this was his second marriage. His first wife was well-known in the community, and she had repeatedly had to commit him to mental hospitals when his schizophrenia and paranoia became so out of control that he just totally decompensated. And so, so to the law enforcement authorities, Scott Panetti's mental health history was nothing new. So then we get to this question of whether he's even competent to stand trial. We're in 1994, and in Texas, and this is going to be puzzling to listeners, a jury decides, right, whether Scott Panetti is fit to stand trial. Why does that happen in front of a jury? The Texas legislature, in its wisdom, decided that this is how competency to stand trial would be determined. And as you can imagine, there are very few cases in Texas where severely mentally ill individuals are found incompetent by juries to stand trial. I I want you to take us through, if you would, the September trial where Scott Panetti is defending himself. He's fired his lawyers because he's convinced that uh, they're in cahoots with the state and the judge and everyone else. So he is representing himself. The judge says, that's fine. Describe the trial for us, please. The trial is so bizarre that you would think that I had made up what I'm about to tell you. During jury selection, Scott routinely goes in and out of understanding of of the present. At one point, he starts asking a juror about wounded elbow, which I think is a reference to wounded knee, and then ends up the question with something about the Ayatollah Khomeini. And the juror is so confused by Scott's questioning, he actually stops and says, I don't really know what you're asking me. And if that had happened once, we might say, well, that's odd. But that happened repeatedly throughout jury selection. Then when he gets into trial, his bizarreness becomes even more pronounced. He's wearing a dime store cowboy outfit. He's tucking his jeans into his boots. He's strutting around the courtroom with a purple neckerchief on and waving a cowboy Bible. And throughout the trial, he goes in and out of psychosis and speaks in odd voices. He takes the witness stand and he cross-examines himself as Sarge. And perhaps most appallingly and most difficult to read in the transcript, he cross-examines 
his wife, who was present when he killed his in-laws, repeatedly about the moment when he shot them. And the point of that cross-examination eludes anyone who reads that transcript. Only a person who's in the throes of severe mental illness could believe that that was at all effective or necessary. And then when he gets to punishment, after he's found guilty and the jury has to decide life versus death, he doesn't call any medical doctors to show that he's had this long history of mental illness. He can't even get in the medical records that support his showing that he's mentally ill because he's scrawled all over them with all sorts of bizarre writings. And the judge obviously doesn't want to let them in. It's not competent evidence. And so perhaps not surprisingly, the jury comes back with a death sentence. And he has backup counsel, right? The court appoints a, an attorney for him, but he wants nothing to do with his counsel. So he had really – there was never a point where he had someone competent as backstop here. That's exactly right. I mean, throughout the the trial, the standby counsel is really trying to show Scott how to defend himself. Because part of Scott's theory was, I was mentally ill when I committed these crimes, but I've been saved by Jesus, so I'm no longer mentally ill, um, because part of his, his chronic schizophrenia includes this religious delusion. And, and so the standby lawyer is saying, look, you know, if you're going to prove this, this, these are the witnesses you need to call. These are the documents you need to submit to the court. But Scott thinks this is all part of a conspiracy to convict him. And, and as a result, he becomes his own worst enemy in the courtroom, in the throes of these delusions. So let's turn now to the appellate process, because suddenly now he's got counsel when it's almost too late. The judge determines that he needs a lawyer on appeal, and uh, he gets attorneys at this point, correct? And he actually gets an attorney who's not half bad. Um, And this attorney goes out and assiduously collects information from people who were present at the trial about just how incompetent, and I don't mean bad, I mean mentally incompetent that Scott was at his trial and how the judge was ignoring this. And, and in fact, when you read the record, you find Scott going into this delusion in the courtroom and the judge is saying things like, move along. So almost as if, we have no time for your psychosis, sir. Could you please hurry up? And, and so the, 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 the appellate lawyer, the, the habeas lawyer, and this is a further form of, of appeal, collects all of this. But somehow the courts are deaf to the claim that Scott Panetti was too mentally ill to represent himself. So then we, we get to this claim that becomes kind of the centerpiece of everything that happens after, and that is Ford versus Wainwright, the 1986 case that says you cannot execute somebody who is insane. Uh, and this this becomes the question that gets litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court from October 2003 to 2007. We are in litigation about what it means to be too mentally ill to execute. And 
the Supreme Court in 2007 says Scott Panetti is that. Well, we don't we're not going to say what that is, but that's what he is. They they say that that whatever the test that is being used in the district court in the Fifth Circuit is not the right test. What is the test that the court lays out in Panetti versus Quarterman in 2007? Well, the court says, look, you have to have a factual and rational understanding of why you're being executed. Not just generally that, you know, you're on death row and somebody says you were convicted of capital murder. You have to know that you are going to be executed because you have killed someone and it was capital murder. But Scott Panetti has never had that belief, and it's tied up with the religious delusions that are at the center of his chronic schizophrenia. He's always believed that he's on death row to save the heathens, to preach the gospel, and that the state of Texas now wants to kill him because they don't want him doing that. So, Catherine, I want to play for you now some audio of that oral argument in Panetti versus Quarterman in 2007, where Scott Panetti's own case is litigated at the Supreme Court. And the case was being argued by Ted Cruz. We now know him as Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. At the time, he was representing Texas as the state's attorney general. And this is a discussion between him and Justice Anthony Kennedy about what the standard is for determining whether someone is too mentally ill to kill. The district court's factual findings demonstrate conclusively that Panetti meets the appropriate test for competency to be executed. The district court found that Panetti understands he committed these two murders. He knows that he murdered two people. He understands that he is going to be put to death. And he That's un- different from having the rational capacity to understand the nature and justification for the punishment. I, I, I think it is, uh, I, I would conclude, it's a fair conclusion from the psychiatrist's affidavits and from their testimony that he knows he committed a crime and he knows he's being punished and he's going to be uh, executed for that crime. But it stops there. Well, the delusions prevent prevent his understanding. Uh, Catherine, listening to that, that kind of becomes the holding of the Panetti case. What what you've just said that uh, it's not enough to just say I murdered some people. Texas wants to execute me because these delusions are confounding a rational understanding of those two things. Uh, that's the, as I understand it, what gets sent back to the district court and to the Fifth Circuit, and yet, and yet, and yet, they find him to still be rational and understanding why he's being executed. So what is the test applied in the district court and the Fifth Circuit when the court, after Panetti, uh, kicks the case back and says, look at it again? When the case goes back to the district court, it really appears to me that the court is still stuck on this some factual awareness test. Because what the court relies on, after it says, well, it's indisputable, he's got this long history of mental illness, is that, well, we have these tapes of conversations of him having visits with his parents. And at times during these visits on the tape that he sounds rational. It sounds like he knows he's on death row because he killed people. It seems to me that that's what we default back to. And, and, and let me just say, it's, it's helpful to know that, you know, in Texas and in the Fifth Circuit, 
no defendant has been found by a court to be incompetent to be executed. So the Supreme Court's directive, which is dig deeper, look harder, in your view, the the courts just do the same thing they did before Panetti? It's hard for me to say that the federal district court allowed a deep dig when it limited payment for defense experts to $9,000 total. And when the state spent $25,000 on a single expert before he ever walked through the courtroom doors to testify. So so one of the claims that you're making in uh, the pleadings now at this late stage of the game is he has not been evaluated in seven years. That's right. Why is that important? Because competence, as anybody who has anyone in their family who's severely mentally ill, changes from day to day, from week to week, from month to month. So when someone has a long-term serious mental illness, you can't assume that they have stayed mentally the same over a seven-year period. That's level one. Level two is that just recently the prison system has turned over through the Texas Attorney General some documents that indicate that Scott has experienced hearing voices, had delusions, and had reported trouble mental trouble to the prison system. And that report was made a year ago. And so we brought that to the attention of the trial court and said, we need some experts. We need an investigator. We need to be able to litigate his competence to be executed. And we were told no. So we're getting the exact amount of process that Scott Lewis Panetti got in 2004 when the state first tried to execute him, which is no process whatsoever. Can I ask, Catherine, when the last time you saw Scott Panetti was? Today. Can you just describe what that was like? Scott has deteriorated, and it's very, very difficult to watch. Uh, He hears voices. Uh, There were a couple times during the interview where it was clear to me that he was not speaking to me. Um. He is paranoid, and he believes that all sorts of surveillance is going on, which, of course, there is surveillance in a prison system, but I don't believe that they're yet implanting listening devices in people's teeth. Um, And it's very difficult to talk to a client who has the symptoms that he has because um, one of the things that he's often engaged in is called flight of ideas, where he goes from topic to topic to topic, and it becomes very difficult to get a word in edgewise. And as you might imagine, as one of his lawyers, there is information I need to give him about the processes that will occur if the state is going to carry out this execution. I mean, there is information I need to give him, but um, his mental state is uh, is really impeding that. And so does he comprehend, I mean, as you had this conversation today, does he comprehend that he is a few short weeks away from execution? Or it's? do you have a sense that that, that information was not conveyed? Scott is aware that there's an execution date. Why he thinks he has it. And what he thinks is motivating it is not 
what the legal system would recognize, I think, as rational. It's not what people would, would recognize as factual. I mean, he has, you know, years and years and years of religious delusion that impact his thinking, and that's all present. So, so in October, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear uh, another appeal from uh, your client. So the Supreme Court is out of it now. Uh, and we've got some activity happening now uh, in the Texas courts. Can you just catch us up on the various prongs of, of what's being done, what your office is doing, uh, and maybe what the groups are doing to try to uh, stave off this execution in these last few weeks? Well, and let me just say, we were notified late of Scott's execution. I mean, the date was set October 16th. I learned of it October 30th at 6 o'clock in the morning when I opened the Houston Chronicle and read about it. Um, so we have been scrambling. Uh, we asked the trial court judge to appoint us as his counsel. We were told no. We asked if we could have an investigator and um, uh, an expert witness in psychology. We were told no. We asked if we could have the execution date withdrawn so we could have some more time to investigate Scott's mental competence. We were told no. We went back to the judge to renew that motion for more time as we began to get information from the Attorney General's office, which has provided us with more than 4,000 pages of material from the prison system. And so as we go through that and have um, come upon information that shows that Scott has been acting delusionally and, and has this religious fixation, which seems to motivate all he does, we attach that to uh, supplementary motions in the trial court and said, we really need more time. And we were told no. And the final no came in last week. And so we have filed an appeal in the Court of Criminal Appeals. And in addition to that, there are efforts to get the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles involved, to get the governor to stay the execution. Uh, who are the groups that have aligned themselves with Panetti in this case? What's so astonishing about this case is how it has cut across lots of lines in our society. Fifty evangelical Christian leaders from across the country have written to the Board of Pardons and Paroles and to our governor, Governor Perry, saying that Scott Panetti should receive clemency. The Baptist Standard, which is the newspaper of the Baptist community, has editorialized that Scott Panetti should get clemency. Meanwhile, we have law enforcement professionals from around the country, including former Texas Governor Mark White, who also have endorsed clemency. And we have mental health professionals from around the country, including the American Psychiatric Association and Mental Health America and the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, also saying that clemency is warranted here because of Scott's serious mental illness. Catherine Case, I wonder if just as a last uh, reflection on what you know your, your, your prior few weeks have been about, uh, what do you find yourself thinking when you're driving from place to place to place, scrambling, as you said, to try to stave off what's starting to feel inevitable? What's your big thought about what this case represents and why this matters? I think about how difficult it is to explain to my family and friends why it is that Texas sees 
it to be necessary to execute this severely mentally ill man. Everyone I speak to says that this is crossing a moral line. I feel that way, too, and I am determined to do all I can to prevent Texas from killing Scott Panetti. Catherine Case is Scott Panetti's lawyer. She is with the Texas Defender Service. And Catherine, I thank you so much for joining us today on Amicus. Thank you, Dahlia. Now we're joined by Professor Brandon Garrett from the University of Virginia. He teaches law there. He's done an enormous amount of work on questions of why innocent people confess, why innocent people are convicted. Uh, And his new book, which just came out two weeks ago, congratulations. Thank you. Is called Too Big to Jail, How Prosecutors Compromise with Corporations. So welcome to Amicus Brennan. Thank you. We'll talk about... Real defendants and not corporate defendants today, I take it. Well, we're going to talk about a little bit more about Scott Panetti. And I think listeners by now are probably as perplexed as you and I are about how a man whose name stands for the case that says you cannot execute the insane is about to be executed. So help us understand, if you would, how it is that Scott Panetti doesn't get caught up in his own net of his own litigation in the Supreme Court. Well, there's the litigation in the Supreme Court, and then there's everything that happened at trial. I think people may not realize that insanity matters in lots of ways when someone is charged with a murder. So number one, there's the insanity defense. People have heard of that, like in the John Hinckley Jr. case. Uh, can you have a purpose to kill someone, intent to kill, if if you're insane? And the answer is no, but uh, different states have different tests for what counts as insanity can you appreciate the difference between right and wrong, et cetera? Now, second, a judge can look at a case before it even goes to a criminal trial and ask, does this person have capacity to be tried for any crime? If this person just simply is, is too insane or too mentally ill, to be a criminal period. And that's a, that's a high standard. It's rare for people to be found totally lacking in capacity to be a criminal. But that issue should have certainly been on the table, and it, and it was here. You know, there were there was a hung jury, and then a second jury on this question before they could even try Panetti for murder. Was he too insane to even be a competent subject of a criminal prosecution? Does it matter at all, Brandon, that he was heavily medicated on antipsychotic drugs when they did this competency hearing? I mean, does that matter for purposes of our timeline in any way that he was competent? to stand trial, but then by the time he was actually trying his own case later on, he was off all of his meds? Does it matter? Well, a person can be medicated in order to be found competent to stand trial, and courts have said that. Uh, Of course, what you're bringing up is yet another way that insanity figures into the early history of this case, which is uh, the judge let him represent himself. That's my next question. (laughs) So uh, here he was representing himself, and and maybe your listeners already heard about the cowboy suit and all the hundreds of witnesses like Jesus Jesus Christ himself. But then he decided, wait a minute, he's already here with us. We don't need to call Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, the the trial was a farce, and 
really maybe the, the you know the judge needed to be examined for <laughs> for letting this whole thing happen so so then the question is after he represents himself at trial then he gets assigned counsel on appeal right so so that's another strange twist to this that he's competent to conduct his own trial but not competent to represent himself on appeal is that another decision point where his sanity would have mattered well what really what's also disturbing is that you know on appeal the lawyers can't bring up objections that were waived at trial. And someone who's calling Jesus Christ as a witness is not going to be preserving legal errors the way a lawyer could. So there, there are all sorts of problems with bringing in lawyers for the first time on appeal. On appeal, it's often too late to bring up things that really matter. And so I mean, this case was really botched by the judge and by the state from the very beginning. And of course, now we have yet another insanity claim, which People not, may not realize that not only is there insanity defense, but there's the question whether someone is too insane to be executed. And that's that's like a present-day claim. It has nothing to do with his mental state as rocky as it was at the time of the murder or at the time of the trial. It's right now, is he too insane to even appreciate why the state wants to execute him? And the Supreme Court has said that if you just can't even understand why you're being brought to the death chamber, what this is all about— then it's not a punishment that serves a social purpose. It's cruel and unusual punishment if you're executing someone who doesn't even understand what's happening. And, and it seems like from what we know of Panetti that he will be executed thinking that he is being executed by the forces of Satan. This leads me to a question that, that I've really been struggling with as I've tried to write about this case. Is the reason we don't execute the mentally ill – and I'm just thinking of Thurgood Marshall's language when he wrote about right. this. And he said, we can't be the kind of society that kills the mentally ill, right? And he's got a gorgeous quote in Ford versus Wainwright where he says, whether it's aimed to protect the condemned from fear and pain without comfort of understanding or to protect the dignity of society itself from the barbarity of exacting mindless vengeance, the restriction finds enforcement in the Eighth Amendment. So we're on the horns of this kind of existential question almost about is it that we don't want to be the kind of society that executes people who are not eligible to be executed or is it because we just can't punish someone who doesn't understand why he's being punished? That's a great question and obviously not all the justices agree with the way Thurgood Marshall put it. And going back to when the death penalty was reinstated in Gregg versus Georgia a few years after the Supreme Court abolished it temporarily in Furman versus Georgia. The justices have named different rationales for why we have the death penalty and therefore why we have to treat it differently than other types of criminal punishment. And sometimes sort of in the same breath, they say, well, it's about deterrence. You know, we're allowed to do the death penalty to deter the very worst murders, but it's also about retribution and it's about sort of condemning the most serious, serious criminals. Now, people who are insane can't so easily be deterred. Or maybe the problem is retribution, that you can't just express moral outrage at someone who has no idea what you're talking about and has a concept of morality, which is sort of conspiracy theories and paranoia, that you just can't express a moral condemnation against someone who doesn't have any moral compass, period. You know, executing someone who's insane sort of flunks multiple tests for why you would have the death penalty. And so maybe you don't have to pick your theory, but the court hasn't picked its theory for why we have the death penalty, and it's changed over time depending on the views of the justices. 
and I agree, there's this third theory, which Thurgood Marshall emphasized, which is more, more has to do with sort of what it says about us as a society. What does it say about us that we might be willing to execute someone who is insane? It's a good segue to my next question, which is, as we've seen the death penalty get cabined off for certain classes of people. So, you know, we have Atkins, which says you can't kill the intellectually disabled. And we have Kennedy, which says you can't kill child rapists if they didn't also commit a murder. And we have Roper, we can't kill juveniles. So there seems to be, by a thousand little cuts, an erosion of the kinds of people that we can kill. And is that how we're eventually in this country going to do with away with the death penalty? Are we just going to have these slow slice and dice classifications of people who are not eligible for the death penalty and someday we'll just get there? We can't get there right now with the mentally ill because it's too hard to determine how we would get there, but that's how we're going to get there? I'm not sure that those decisions will get us there. There weren't that many juveniles on America's death rows. So in some ways, it wasn't that tall in order to say these are really unusual death penalty cases. Most states don't let kids go to death row for murders. And the bar was also low to talk about the intellectually disabled. Now, when you're starting to talk about people who were or are mentally ill, all of a sudden you're talking about many, many more people facing the death penalty. There are an awful lot of people who, who are mentally ill who are charged with capital murder and, and face the death penalty. One of the problems in this whole area is that the people who commit the most atrocious, heinous, and cruel-type murders, there's something not right with a person like that normally. And and the uh, other aspect of it is that being on death row for long periods of time is obviously not good for someone's mental health. And all of a sudden, there's this separate problem with, well, what if the person has gone insane by the time that they are facing execution? Right? This problem about mental illness goes to the core of many, many more cases Eventually, I think what the Supreme Court is going to have to do is crack down on these states that are letting terrible lawyers continue to do these cases. But who knows whether that will happen or when. So I'm going to ask you one last question. And because this is a show, at least nominally, about the U.S. Supreme Court, I want to ask you if you thought the U.S. Supreme Court was going to take Panetti's petition this time around in October when yes. he came back to the court, uh, if you thought they were going to take it and how you reacted when they didn't. Yeah, you know better than I do. You can never count on the Supreme Court taking anything. But they take so many boring cases. Why, <laughs> why, why wouldn't they take this one? And also where you have a prior decision of theirs really being flouted by the Fifth Circuit. How, how could they not take it? We also we hadn't talked about Hall versus Florida yet, but there the Supreme Court did take a case where it seemed like the state of Florida was basically flouting their previous pronouncements that you can't execute intellectually disabled. The state had a standard where there was a, a rigid IQ cutoff that they're applying. If your IQ is above this score, then then yes, we can sentence you to death. The Supreme Court said, no, no, no. Like you could, The score might be a few points in one direction or another, depending on who's administering the IQ test. We all know that. The question is whether the person is functionally intellectually disabled. And you have to rely on experts. You can't just impose your own judge-made cutoff, since people doing IQ tests don't believe in any in a rigid cutoff for intellectual disability. Well, here it would be another opportunity for them to say you can't replace a scientific and medical test with judge-made junk science. And that's what the Fifth Circuit is doing, and that's what the Supreme Court is letting remain in place. Well, that's an incredibly depressing note to end on, but I think we must end there. So I want to thank you so much. Brandon Garrett teaches law at the University of Virginia. His 
terrific new book is Too Big to Jail, How Prosecutors Compromise uh, with Corporations. Brandon, thank you very, very much for joining us today to talk about a deeply disheartening topic, that of Scott Panetti. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, what you'd like to hear more of or less of in upcoming episodes. You can always reach us at amicus at slate.com. That's amicus at slate.com. If you like what you've been hearing so far on the podcast, there are two big things you could do to help us spread the word. One, go to the iTunes store, search for Amicus, and then leave us a short review. Two, tell your friends and family about the podcast. We really appreciate your support. Thanks also to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for the next edition of Amicus. Thank you.